Hello everyone to this new episode of the Shabda podcast. It's been a while since I recorded uh, a session. Uh, I've been busy trying to get this book uh, published. Uh, it's called Conceiving the Inconceivable. Uh, it's a commentary on the Vedanta Sutra. So uh, uh, today I'll briefly talk about that book and uh, Uh, but before that i also have some questions from some readers uh, regarding that book or on issues surrounding uh, the topics that are covered in that book so let me just start by trying to respond to those questions and as and where needed i'll try to intersperse the answers with uh, some details from the book and uh, toward the end if something is left over then i'll try to address that separately So the first question is what is a good english term for abheda is it oneness identity or something else so abheda means uh it's the negation of bheda bheda means difference and abheda therefore means literally it means non difference Now in conventional logic when we say two things are not different the assumption is that they are identical but this assumption or this translation of abheda as identity or oneness itself assumes classical logic in the sense that if two things are not different then they must be identical this is the principle of uh, uh, mutual exclusion that uh, yeah or actually non contradiction in this case and I'll, i'll briefly come to mutual exclusion so non contradiction says either two things are the same or they're different but they cannot be or or something is either true or false it cannot be both false or neither false nor true so certain assumptions about logic are built in, in into english and in generally in western thinking and uh, when the translations are made based on that thinking then uh, abheda is translated as oneness uh, or identity but it's not the correct translation is non difference so what is <clears throat> non difference uh, uh, let me just take an example uh, about this non difference So in the book conceiving the inconceivable there's a stock example that I use but it need not be that example it can be many examples but let me use the stock example and then I can try to generalize this So the stock example I use is is that of a cow and a mammal and this is not a very special example it can be any two concepts one which is more specific and the other one that is more general so it can be like uh, color and sight or yellow and color so in this case let's just use the example of cow and mammal so there are two statements that are generally made uh, about these concepts where we can say the cow is a mammal right so we call this uh, you know inheritance of the property where a cow has inherited the property of being a mammal but because of this inheritance we also say that a mammal is not a cow right now this immediately violates the principle of identity in logic 
where if you say A is B, then immediately you have to say B is A. In, in arithmetic or in set theory, if you say two sets are equal to each other or one set is equal to the other set, then the other set must also be equal to the first one. But in this case, we do not accept that uh, principle of identity. So we begin by violating the principle of identity in logic. And uh, so a cow is a mammal, but a mammal is not a cow. And this is simply because the mammal is a more general concept than a cow. And because this principle of logic is violated in all conceptual conversations, therefore classical logic is not fit for dealing with concepts. And there are several, you know, uh, logics that have been proposed, none of which completely works. And uh, uh, so this is the reason why in mathematics, it is, uh, mathematics is said to be incomplete. And there are several reasons of that incompleteness, which uh, we'll probably discuss uh, later in the, uh, in, the, in the podcast. But the basic idea is that whenever we use concepts, and one concept is a more general concept, the second one is a more specific concept, we can say that uh, the, the specific concept inherits properties of the more general concept. But the general concept doesn't have that, uh, you know, uh, have, have, doesn't have the property of the specific concepts. Nevertheless, if you're thinking about sets, uh, then you can say the mammal uh, is a set and cow is an object inside that set. So, in one sense, now this becomes the whole part doctrine where the whole contains the part, so the part is not truly separable from the whole. But in another sense, the whole is not equal to the part. Right? So you can also state this abheda uh, property in terms of the whole and part, where the part is inside the whole, so it is not totally separate from the whole. And uh, in another sense, the whole doesn't equal to the part, because the whole contains the other parts. But this whole and part <clears throat> uh, must be understood conceptually. It must be understood in terms of concepts. Because if we try to understand this whole and part in terms of physical objects, then we can say that the whole is nothing other than the collection of all the individual parts. Right? So the stock example in Advaita philosophy, for example, is, uh, is that there is an ocean and there are drops and uh, it is said that once the drop mixes into the ocean then the, it actually becomes undifferentiable or identical with the ocean but anybody will tell you that when you put the drop inside the ocean it has not lost its identity because if you believe in atomism you can say that the drop previously was some molecules or atoms uh, and uh, those atoms and molecules have retained their identity. So in theory, you could remove those precise atoms or molecules and uh, the ocean would actually be reduced. And uh, because it can get reduced, therefore, we can go on taking drops after drops after drop from the ocean and the ocean will go on shrinking. And uh, therefore, the whole, in this case, the ocean is nothing but the sum of its drops. 
But when we think of this whole and part in terms of concepts, then we can say that even if cows did not exist or even if you remove the idea of a cow from the idea of a mammal, the ma idea of mammal would still be the idea of a mammal. It would not be reduced because the mammal means, you know, a, a, you know set of species that breastfeed their kids or they have mammaries. So the idea of a mammal would not change, it will not reduce in meaning, we will not change the meaning or we will not say mammal has been lessened by the removal of the cow. So removal of the part of the mammal doesn't reduce the mammal. And this is a uh, very deep idea and in, in so many places it's described in so many ways. One of uh, one of these ways is in, in Ishopanishad, for example, it is said, Om Purnamadaha Purnamidam Purnata Purnamudachate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnamevavachishate. So uh, the whole is complete, and if you remove the complete from that complete, the balance is also complete, right? So there are two kinds of complete here. The first complete is the mammal, the idea mammal. And the second complete is the set of all cows and horses and dogs and cats and, you know, so on, all the types of mammals. So you can take the set of, you, know, you can take the idea mammal and you can say that is complete. And from this complete comes out all the other, you know, types of mammals like cows, horses, dogs, cats, elephants and so on. And uh, even if you remove this complete from that complete, the, com the original complete is not reduced, right? So the balance is also complete. So, in, so what they're saying is that if you remove cow, horse, dog, tiger, whatever it is from, you know, the set of mammals, the mammal is still, uh, you know, complete. And this is conceivable, this is understandable only when we think of this whole and part in terms of concepts. It becomes impossible to understand this if you think in terms of physical objects. Right? So if you take a drop out of uh, the ocean, the ocean is reduced. If you cut a hand from your body, the body is reduced. So any physical conception uh, leads to uh, the problem. So. In a very simple sense, if we have to conceive reality, it has to be a sort of what I call semantic realism or conceptual realism, where the whole is a concept and the part is a concept. And I've described in previous episodes of the podcast where uh, the whole is knowledge and the part is, uh, you know, divisions of that knowledge. So, uh, Srimad Bhagavatam, for example, says, uh, so, the whole is described as knowledge and the parts are subdivisions of knowledge. So, for example, you, you have departments of knowledge like mathematics, physics, etc. So, you can say mathematics is knowledge, but you don't say knowledge is mathematics. Or you can say physics is knowledge. But knowledge is not physics. Economics is knowledge, but knowledge is not economics. Right? So this is a very general, you know, usage of terms. And the reason is that uh, we don't treat physics and mathematics and biology and economics as physical things. We treat them as ideas, concepts. And whenever and we treat knowledge as a very general concept. 
So whenever we think in terms of concepts at that point, uh, we can say that physics is part of knowledge. So you cannot say physics is not knowledge. But at the same time, you cannot say that knowledge is physics, right? So you get these two seemingly contradictory ideas where you say physics is knowledge, knowledge is not physics. And this violates the principle of identity where you can say A is B, but B is not A. So Abheda simply means or non-difference simply means that it's not identical and it is not difference. It's the neither category. Because the principle of mutual exclusion says it must either be X or it must be not X. It cannot be neither of X and not X. This is the principle of mutual exclusion. And the principle of non-contradiction is it cannot be both X and not X. So it must be either X or not X. It can't be both X and not X. It cannot be neither X nor not X. But in this case, the first, you know, uh, result that we get is that identity is broken. So A is B, but B is not A. And then the basis, when we deeply analyze this problem, then we say that the way it is being structured is that we are getting it's neither, you know, same nor different. And we are breaking the principle of mutual exclusion. And similarly, we will see, you know, even the principle of non-contradiction is also broken because we say that it is X and not X and they are said in different ways. So all the principles of logic are broken by this simple idea of Abheda. And uh, because it means non-difference and uh, cow is a mammal, but mammal is not a cow. Right. So this is a very simple way in which uh, the sense of... Uh, 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 oneness and identity cannot be applied uh, as a translation to Abheda. Now, historically, the problem has been that uh, uh, these terms like Abheda have been interpreted as identity. And uh, this is another term, for example, is Dvaita and Advaita. So, Advaita is taken to mean as, you know, identity but it is not identity the term advaita of course is seldom used but even if it is used it means non-dual it doesn't mean one similarly abheda means non-different not identical and the only way we can understand this is if we conceive of reality uh, in terms of concepts The next question is, uh, could you describe a material example of Abheda that does not involve the soul or God? Are these paradoxes or puzzles in Western logic? So, in the answer to the previous one, we talked about how, you know, cow and mammal are, you know, this is un doesn't involve the soul and God. But, uh, you know, and we can extend this example. Another classic example of uh, this non-duality appears in the study of the five, you know, material elements. And uh, 
for example these these elements are called earth water fire air ether and uh, each element contains the previous element and it is contained in the subsequent element right so ether for example contains air fire you know water and earth but this containment is pretty much like the mammal contains cows and horses and you know dogs and cats and so on inside the idea mammal you would not find these distinctions right so in one sense uh, the cow the horse the dog the cat they are all hidden inside mammal they are not visible so but at the same time because these come out of the, the, the dog the horse the cow the cat they come comes out of mammal therefore we we say that all these species are inside mammal but at the same time we'll also say that the mammal is not the horse the mammal is not the cow the mammal is not the dog right so even though everything is inside mammal yet that mammal is not any of those things so therefore you can say for example the element ether contains air fire water earth but all these things are not ether right or ether is different from all all of these things but once they are manifest then we can say that ether is in the earth ether is in the water ether is in the fire ether is in the air and that is just like you know cow is a mammal a dog is a mammal a horse is a mammal so you can say the element earth is also the element water is also the element fire is also the element uh, air and this is further explained by this example of of saying that whenever there is the earth element then all the other elements are present all the qualities are manifest whereas in the ether all the elements are present but the qualities are not manifest so if you have uh, you know if you have only sound you might not have the sensations of touch and sight uh, and smell and taste but if you are able to smell something then you will also be able to taste it you will also be able to see it you will also be able to touch it and you can also hear it so veda veda in this case the element earth is the whole and uh, you know uh, air is a part of that which means there are certain things that can be heard but that cannot be touched right so there are certain uh, you know similarly there are certain things that can be uh, smelled but you know that, that sorry that can be tasted but cannot be smelled like you can say odorless you know things so this is so the principle of veda veda is not simply about god and soul it is about everything whether you are talking about five material elements or you are talking about your body and mind uh, or any other subject you are talking about this veda veda principle you know is applies and a veda simply means veda means that there are two different things there is a mammal and a cow a veda means that Uh, uh the cow is a mammal and mammal is not the cow right similarly this so this principles apply to all the elements so in in that sense for example in the case of mind body duality which is a topic often you know discussed in western philosophy you can say in one sense the body is the mind 
and that's what we say when we say that the body is developed based on the mind right so you have a certain personality you have certain ideas and the gross matter material world is hidden inside the mind it comes out of the mind just like the cow comes out of the mammal just like earth comes out of water just like everything comes out of god so the body is a manifestation of the mind but and therefore you can say that all the properties of the mind are visible in the body right so for example if you are feeling unhappy there will be some symptoms of that unhappiness in the body and that's how neuroscientists and you know all materialists are able to say that uh, just by measuring the body we can know something is happening so you can perform some measurements on the brain and say that oh now this person is seeing of course they are not seeing what this guy is seeing but there is a symptom or an effect of uh, that seeing in in the body so therefore the body is emanated out of the mind it's an it's an emanation or it's a manifestation out of the mind and therefore you can say the body is nothing but the representation of the mind in another sense you can say the mind is not the body the mind is different from the body but the body is the mind right so all these paradoxes about me being able to understand the effects of the mind on the body like in neuroscience and so on they are easily and, and yet the mind being different from the body how is it different um, uh, so this is understood if we understand the nature of this non difference similarly we can say that the effect of the soul is seen in the body right so if we can say there's a living body and a dead body so because there's an effect therefore everybody can say oh this body is living and therefore this body or this this life itself is what you mean by soul it there is no separate soul because there is an effect because you know uh, in in classical mind body dualism of western philosophy you had to say mind is a separate substance so it had to be different from this body but that's not the case uh, what we are talking about so the soul has an effect on the body therefore the body is living if the soul leaves then the body is said to be dead but because it has an effect doesn't mean it is you know uh, identical to the body the soul is different right again this abheda comes into the picture the body is inside the soul and the soul is different from the body so even when soul goes to the spiritual world there is a body the in even in the spiritual world the soul has a body and that body is said to be manifested it's said to be non different from the soul it is not like a diff, you know uh, so why why is it non different because it's manifested from within the soul it's a part of the soul the body is a part of the soul so the soul is the whole and we can say that uh, the body is the soul but the soul is not the body right so there's a uh, subtle difference here so this is the principle abheda it it applies to everything if we if we don't understand this then we don't understand anything else so it's it's absolutely crucial that we understand what do we mean by bo- and this is this is a big problem because everybody is talking about uh you know how consciousness is different from the body how the mind is different from the body yes it is different no doubt there is a there's a mind that's different but 
can you explain how the mind has an effect on the body? Because that's what the materialists are talking about. They're saying, hey, I can see an effect on the body and I cannot explain how that effect can arise if there is mind-body dualism. Because how can something different affect, you know, the, how can the mind affect the body? And unless you can explain that effect, we are going to simply assume that because I see some effects, therefore it is the mind. The body is the mind, right? So, this problem requires us to explain what do we mean by mind and body, which are abheda. They are different and they are, you know, not the same, and, but they are, we use the term non-different to explain this idea. And uh, therefore, there is an effect on, uh, the so mind has an effect on the body, but the cause is not the effect, right? So, this is where the abheda. So, uh, some examples, I think there are innumerable examples, but uh, the second part of the question uh, was saying that are these paradoxes or puzzles in Western logic? Uh, the answer is yes and no. Uh, in Western logic, the, the, the problem is somewhat different and it's a, it's a more complicated problem uh, which, which, is, uh, which arises because in language, the same word is used in many ways and an, an example of that word is for example you say uh, you know use the word precedent or the precedent so sometimes you can say the president is the head of the nation and that's a generic description of what we mean by the president right the meaning of the word it's a universal concept the president is you know head of some things in this case you can say the president is the head of the nation but you can also say the president wants to meet you now in that case we are not talking about that universal idea of the president we are talking about a specific individual person who wants to meet you now right so the word the president sometimes means the universal idea sometimes it means a specific individual and sometimes you, you could you know there could be a president of the football club right so the meaning of the president could be depending on if you know secretary of state or foreign minister were talking about the president they would naturally mean the president of the state but if somebody who's you know some player at a football club was talking about the president he would mean the president of the football club so there is contextuality so the same word the president can mean the head of the state it can mean the head of a nation uh, it can also mean the head of a football club and it can also denote an individual who's president of the nation or you know head of the football club so the same word the president is used in three different ways one is a universal other is an individual and third is a contextual so the meaning of the word president comes in three ways so these three ways are, you know, uh, the three modes of nature and these three modes, they apply to everything. It is not just that the modes are only in matter, they are uh, applicable to everything else. That's a deeper uh, philosophical point that's discussed at length in conceiving the inconceivable. And uh, <clears throat> the, this, this issue is basically because you can use the same word in three different ways you don't know which of the meanings applies in this particular case right so but the context helps you understand that in ordinary language we can understand 
When you say the president wants to meet you, you know who's, who's speaking and in what context they're speaking. Therefore, you kind of know that they're talking about the head of the nation, not about the president of some football club. In another context, uh, you know, the same thing uh, means something else. So you have to know who is speaking, where they're speaking, right? In what context they're speaking. Therefore, this term, Deshakala Patra, or time, place, and circumstances. This term is used frequently. And all this is saying that based on the time, the place, the circumstance, the meaning of the same word changes. And if the meaning of the word changes, then obviously the meaning of the sentence changes, the meaning of the paragraph changes, the meaning of the book changes, based on time, place, circumstance. And uh, this is a more deeper philosophical conversation about why only these three words are used, which I will not get into uh, right now. But the basic point is that uh, the meanings of words are not universally given. Language is not, doesn't have a universal meaning. Uh, you know, one important thing, if you study the Vedanta Sutra, you will see the same sutra is mentioned many times, right? So, the, for example, there is this sutra, Smritescha. Even in the Smriti, something has been said, right? So, they use the word Smritescha. Cha means and. And Smriti, you know, means the Smriti scriptures like Puranas, Tantras and so on. So, Smritescha. So, it says, Smriti also says the same thing. So this word, this, this statement is there multiple times and there are variations of this uh, statement also which essentially means the same thing and uh, but even this exact same statement Smatescha is there four times in the Vedanta Sutra and every time it means something else. Sometimes, you know, if previously the discussion has been about the qualification of the spiritual master and something has been said then they will say Smritescha. So if you have a doubt about what Sruti is saying, then you can also refer to Smriti. Sometimes it's householder's duties. Smriti also says this. So based on the context, the meaning of that statement is completely different. And therefore, you cannot take a verse out of the context. You cannot take a statement out of the context and say that, oh, now I know the meaning and then use it in another context where it should not be used. So, what happens in, in logic, and this is a problem in mathematics because all proofs in mathematics and logic are supposed to be true in all possible worlds. There is simply no idea of contextuality. You cannot say that this theorem is true in this time, this place, this circumstance. No, the theorem is true in all times, all places, all situations. And because of this nature of logic, and mathematics, you cannot deal with contextual truth and all language is contextual. All semantics is contextual. Therefore, mathematics can never equate to the power of ordinary language. And all the paradoxes of mathematics essentially arise when we try to uh, bring mathematics close to the power of ordinary language. And that power is simply that I should be able to use the words, uh, same words in different ways. So the way mathematics solves this problem is, is by saying that we will not use the three meanings of a word. We will use only one meaning. Right? So there is a universal meaning, there is an individual meaning, there is a contextual meaning. So we are going to remove the contextual meaning and the universal meanings 
of the words and we will only talk about the individuals so if you do mathematics and set theory for example the the meaning of the set is simply the collection of the objects the set has no other meaning so for example if you take you know set called horse the horse has no uh, you know this 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 word horse has no other meaning other than the fact that there are millions of individual things included in that set right so this philosopher sometimes use the word extension and intention intention is supposedly the meaning of the word horse and extension is the collection of all the individual things that are horses and the moment you remove the universal from this you immediately run into the problem that i cannot classify something as a horse unless i have a concept horse so if i remove the concept then how do i put something into the set called horse and therefore you get into paradoxes because you assume that something is a horse based on the concept and then he went on to say there is no concept so you could not put anything into the set called horse to put something in a set called horse you must have the idea horse beforehand but we don't like to have this idea because having that idea will lead to contextual truth and it will break our mathematics and logic but not having that idea will also lead to problems because i don't know how to classify anything so the result is simply that we talk about sets as collections of objects but we cannot assign them any meaning right so it's it's a purely physical collection like you have a ocean and a, you know set of drops so ocean has no meaning the word ocean is meaningless only the drops and the individual you cannot also use the word drops you can only say this particle and that particle and that particle and trillions of these particles and at some point in time if you go further down you can't even use the word particle because you know it means a general idea it means a concept so you mean to say this 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 that 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 this 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 is a set that's how you know crude this whole idea becomes because i can't use the words every word denotes a concept and every concept is forbidden because it will lead to contextual truth which will create it will you know start telling me that mathematics cannot be universally true i cannot have a universal truth at all if i use mathematics so that is the paradox in mathematics it is it is a further extension of this basic problem of uh, bheda bheda or you know abheda non difference and uh, th- these are two separate problems if if you are if you're simply talking in the terms of universals or concepts you can say that cow and mammal so there is a problem between the relation between cow and mammal but then you can say cow also means my specific cow that is standing in the cow shed right now so you can say go and feed the cow i'm not talking about feeding the general concept cow i'm talking about my specific cow who's standing in my cow shed so if i use go and say go and feed the cow then i'm talking about my specific cow right or you can say that person is just a cow or she is a cow or he is a cow what you are meaning is that they are gentle uh, they will not resist you and things like that so the word cow doesn't have a universal meaning even though there is a universal meaning you can't use the meaning in all the places sometimes 
cow means a you know type of a mammal sometimes the word cow means my cow in my cow shed and sometimes cow means something that is you know somebody is a cow it's a contextual meaning so the contradictions of mathematics emerge from this basic problem which is different from the abheda problem next question is since all examples have difference in them can abheda be fully explained by saying there is oneness only in a certain sense of usage and therefore there is identity in the sense of usage and difference in other senses of usage therefore there is no abheda uh yes and no so the modalities you know as i was saying this contextual modality there is individual modality so when i'm when i'm using the concept cow all the individual cows have that similarity so they are identical in that sense they are all cows but at the same time that doesn't mean this cow is identical to that cow and again this thing arises only if we say there is there are universals and there are individuals if we don't use these two separate things uh then this idea that uh, you know they are both identical and different this becomes a problem it starts breaking logic and the assumption in logic is that we are not talking about concepts we are only talking about things right so all logic all western logic or whatever we call logic at the present is is only talking about physical things so i cannot have concepts so i cannot say you know uh, this cow and that cow are basically the same thing in the sense of species the species is a general concept it's a universal so in in set theory we have to say this set is a collection of a b c d elements and uh, another set is a collection of some something else and because they're mutually exclusive collections therefore uh, they are different but when we use concepts when we use universals and individuals then in the sense of concepts or universals they are the same but at the same time because they are different individuals therefore they are not the same so therefore to combine the similarity and difference we use the word non different two cows are non different they are identical in the sense that they are both cows but they are different because they are different individual cows so when we combine these two modes again we get non different so that's a third way of uh, using these uh, these terms so just because two cows are not identical doesn't mean they're completely different they are identical as cows but they are different individuals so they are identical in the sense of the same concept but they're different as individuals so therefore because they're both identical and different so we use the word non different and uh, therefore there is no abheda no we we cannot uh, say that there is no abheda there is a difference The next question is you mentioned the concept of abheda does not exist in classical logic because it violates principles could you elaborate on this please 
so classical logic as i as i said and uh, you know i have a book on this called godel's mistake uh, the role of meaning in mathematics and uh, mathematics is all about universal truth mathematical truth is supposed to be universally true in all possible worlds right it, there is no time there is no place there is no circumstance so mathematical 2 plus 2 has to be universally true but the 2 plus 2 quantitative addition is it is you can say it is universally true but that's not all the stuff that we are talking about numbers can also you know and this is something that godel did in his proof what he did is he took words and he started mapping them to numbers so you can say the president and i can take each of the alphabet and assign you know a number and there is a numbering scheme called godel's numbering scheme by which we can make the word president a unique number and once he started assigning them these numbers then he started asking all kinds of questions uh and some of these questions you know use the word president as you know as a universal some of them use it as an individual and once you start using them uh you you get into contradictions and uh, so the conclusion that godel arrived at was that mathematics is incomplete how is it incomplete uh because it cannot deal with the universal mode the contextual mode it can only deal with the individual so when i say 2 plus 2 um you know 2 itself becomes a problem in 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 arithmetic because 2 is supposed to be a concept and uh, what is 2 bertrand russell defined this 2 as the set of all things you know or a set of all sets that have two members it could be two shoes um you know two horses two cows two houses two countries whatever anything that you can imagine it's a set of all those two things and uh, so he defined the set or the number 2 like this but the problem was how do i know there are two why not three so to define two i must have the idea of two-ness with me a priori otherwise i cannot know and collect things you know into sets of 2 and uh, because i need to know before that means i need to have the concepts uh, you know before i work on things or before i count things therefore i cannot have a consistent set theory or consistent number theory and the only way to get this consistent number theory is to say that there is no two concept there is no concept called two ness three ness four ness i can only uh, you know talk about Uh, uh you know individual so i so basically all number theory reduces down to saying that there is an order okay first second third fourth fifth sixth but even if you do that then even to say there is something called fifth you must have the idea of you know five so mathematics mathematicians will even go down to say there is nothing called fifth is only next so you you start at something and say this is you know uh, zero for example this is my so if you go down to axiomatic number theory they'll say zero is a basic number and then we have an operation called next so these are the two axioms so zero next is one and then next of one is two and so on and they define one two and three like this not as two ness three ness four ness 
and therefore what what you do if you're going to count then you, you can say that you know i have zero elements or two one element or two element and three element and so on and all that you're doing by this process is reducing everything down to physical objects and uh, therefore you cannot use the word you know two-ness as a concept and what you mean by there are two things is simply to say that there is a first thing and there is a second thing but even here there are there are numerous problems because which one is first and which one is second how do you know which one is first how do you start counting so then you know there is an axiom of choice added to set theory right so if you read if you are adept at you know some of these things then you can go and read zermelo frankel set theory and there's a it's called zfc and then there's a zfc with an axiom of zfc is the choice c is the choice so it says zf is zermelo frankel and c is zermelo frankel with choice and why that choice comes in because you don't know which one is first and which one is second so you have to add choice even to solve this problem so consciousness in the sense of being able to select or order things in different ways enters number theory and set theory you you can't even count and even in this counting you're not using concepts right so even if you think about the world completely in a physical sense even then you need you know choice because you you got to know which one is first and which one is second and so on so if you're forming a space for example euclidean geometric space you can say there is an origin and there is a next point but where do you place the origin in that space is a choice and that's what come comes to be known as relativity so each observer is making a choice and say this is my origin and what is that origin it's me so from that origin so everybody can you know make a choice and once they define the origin then they can do next point and next point and next point and so on but this is not enough so you have to say that you know what is the orientation of x axis and y axis and z axis that is also a choice so multiple choices are involved what what do you mean by direction uh, so i can say x my x x axis points in a different direction than your x axis and that's a uh, you know choice then you can say why should i use euclidean geometric Uh, you know x y z orthogonal coordinates i can also use radial coordinates so radial coordinates are r theta and phi so i can say that that is also a choice so there are numerous choices in deciding what the coordinate system is where the axes are you know pointing and what the origin is so these three kinds of you know some other time we'll discuss there are three kinds of choices and uh, these three choices they arise in everything even if you take the world physically but the 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 problem of or the paradoxes in logic are you know com, you know slightly different level although not completely uh, separate from these things The next question is um, we see achintya bheda bheda tattva used to describe anything that references oneness we hear it is inconceivable or it doesn't fit in regular logic when a concept of oneness comes up is the concept of abheda necessary to understand as logical and rational before we understand that achintya bheda bheda tattva so this is a um, 
this is the question with which this book uh, conceiving the inconceivable begins and uh, you know in the introduction itself i trace the history of vedanta philosophy and uh, in contrast it to lots of other doctrines like materialism idealism uh, buddhism and uh, pantheism and, and so on and every theory has a problem every theory is a problem uh, if you take uh, you know if you take all the western philosophies like idealism materialism you know pantheism and so on they have more problems advaita buddhism has resolves many of these problems but buddhism also has some problem that advaita resolves the problem so advaita by that sense is a much better philosophy it's you know it has very few contradictions uh, but it has one problem which is that it cannot explain how the soul falls in this world and how it gets liberated because it's not able to de- describe whether we are in control of matter or is matter controlling us right so the difference between brahman and maya who is in control and uh, to say that there is bondage in this material world you know advaita has to say that matter is in control but to say that i can get liberated from this material entanglement i have to say i am in control so how can you say matter is in control and then i am in control right so if you if you say that matter is in control then the soul fell because matter attracted it into you know enjoyment or suffering and and things like that then you know the, how can the soul get out of this enjoyment and suffering on the other hand if the soul actually you know fell into matter by its own free will then you know soul must have ha- must have been an individual to have that free will because if you don't have individuality then you don't have choice uh, to to have choice you must be an individual already so if you had choice and you were an individual to begin with uh, you know before you fell into matter then when you get liberated how can you become one you must always be an individual right so this problem in advaita exists now to address this problem a series of interpretations have been done uh, there is suddha advaita there is vishishta advaita there is dvaita there is bheda bheda and there is achinta bheda bheda so to briefly understand uh, this evolution is that uh, vishishta advaita or ashuddha advaita starts with this idea that god and soul are qualitatively similar right so the the qualities are sat chit and anand there is a cognitive capacity there is a emotive capacity and there is a relational capacity and god has these three capacities and soul also has these three capacities so in that sense they are qualitatively similar but they are not similar in all the respects right so this term of quantitative difference like god is vibhu and the soul is anu god is you know big and the soul is small this kind of difference is made and uh, but that doesn't suffice because how did the small come about right so what is the relationship between the small and the big or you can say so the vishishta advaita goes and says there is a relation between whole and part Uh, and uh, this whole and part are like object and property so you can say there's a particle which has the property of mass and momentum energy in the same way god is that particle god is that object 
and soul and the different souls are just different properties of that object but now that leads to more problems and uh, you know the, the, the i mean the, the first problem is that if the soul enters in the material world then it becomes the object and matter becomes a property and when it goes back to the spiritual world then the soul becomes the property and god becomes the object so the soul sometimes is in the object mode and sometimes in the property mode so whether it's in the material world it's incomplete because it's not a property and then when it goes to spiritual world then it is incomplete because it's not the object so the soul has to keep oscillating between these two places the material world spiritual world material world spiritual world because in both the places the soul is incomplete so then dvaita philosophy comes in and, and says that actually soul and different uh, and god are completely different and when they say that then numerous contradictions are produced because you know uh, god is said to be sarvakaran karanam the cause of all causes he says janama adisya yataha uh, from that from which everything comes right so god and soul if they are eternally different then how can soul be Uh, created by god uh, you know how can god be the cause of all causes how can the god be the source of everything so dvaita solves the problem of repeated you know fall and liberation but then it leads to a new problem of how did all this arise so then uh, this philosophy of abheda abheda comes in which says which is you know we have been discussing what we mean by abheda abheda is non difference so we say they say not difference and and non difference right so just like we say mammal is not the cow but the cow is the mammal so the conclusion is that they are you know different and identical and uh, so we use this concept non difference but the problem is all the examples that are used to explain this bheda bheda are physical examples so for example you know one of the you know examples used is that there's fire and a spark and you can say the spark is you know different from the fire but it is also identical to the fire but somebody can now come and say that if you go on removing sparks from the fire after some time the fire will extinguish there will be no more fire because all the sparks went out so that leads to reductionism where a fire is nothing but a bunch of sparks or an ocean is nothing but a you know collection of drops so it doesn't you know explain bheda bheda philosophy and the 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 crux of the contentions fail because the examples used to illustrate this idea are you know physical examples so then achinta bheda bheda comes and says that you know we are not able to conceive this bheda bheda it's difference and non difference and it is true that we cannot conceive it because there will be contradictions if you ever employ physical mode of thinking and that's pretty much the same conclusion arrived at by set theory by mathematics that if you use this physical mode of thinking it's always incomplete or inconsistent so in uh, in 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 mathematics for example say mathematics is incomplete because we don't want to go to the other extreme of saying there are contradictions in mathematics that will be a total disaster but sri chaitanya mahaprabhu's philosophy is that we will accept contradictions as long as we can get completeness 
so we are interested in the whole truth the complete truth the perfect truth but there are contradictions in this truth and we cannot understand therefore we say it's achintya or inconceivable now what i have done in this conceiving the inconceivable book is demonstrate how this all these historical problems can be resolved if we go to the next step and say that the examples that you are using are incorrect the correct example is not physical analogies of whole and part but conceptual analogies of whole and part so it's not like uh, you know table and a leg of that table because if you take out the legs then and the top and everything then after that there is no table but that's not the case with the mammal if you take out the cow the horse you know the dog the cat uh, there is the mammal word is pretty clear even if all these species did not exist or even if one of them existed any of them existed we will still be very clear what we mean by mammal and even if none of the species existed we could we would still be very clear of what we mean by this word so the elimination of all these examples do not reduce the concept and uh, the addition of these examples doesn't add to the concept we don't start saying that now i understand you know mammal has been refined because a cow has now started existing no we were pretty clear about what mammal is without even when you know cow didn't uh, exist so uh, it is inconceivable if we use physical logic very simple terms and physical logic is determined by physical thinking that there are two separate things you know Uh, if you look at two chairs you never use the word chair you just say this and that this you you so and, and you you never say that it has four legs because what do you mean by leg leg is a concept right so this is whole this is a whole lot of 20th century philosophy where people try to solve this problem where they say let's get rid of all ideas because ideas like beauty and knowledge and justice and all these things uh they lead to so many problems and we have been fighting over these things for thousands of years you know religion is just one of the you know problems that leads to this idea of goodness and and things so let's get rid of all these things and reduce everything to sense perception and even the sense perception i cannot use concepts so i cannot say yellow or red or blue i must say frequency but you know what is frequency uh, let's agree to say that this frequency is this specific instrument that is used to measure frequency so we will not even talk about the word frequency we will also say the frequency is also an object which is used to measure frequency so kilo weight is not a property in science it's that kilogram that is kept in a standard museum where you know it's a, it's a specific object that's called a kilogram and that defines what we mean by weight similarly meter or le- length is not let's not even talk about length let's only say that we will measure in relationship to a standard object that we called a meter so everything has to get reduced to objects and once it gets reduced to objects then by measurement we reduce it to numbers so there is only two things there is objects and numbers but don't say this number is also two ness three ness four ness it is next 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 of zero and then comes down to what is zero uh we don't know but let's assume that the first number is zero 
So this is how science is uh, constructed by numerous reductions, subsequent you know, successive reductions. And uh, it's, it's, it's an impoverished language. In this language, uh, we cannot you know, uh, use concepts at all. If you can't use concepts, then there's no point in saying mind has concepts because it is contradictory to all your language. Because in science, so the, you have to say that there is nothing called mind, it's just a brain and the brain is nothing but molecules and the molecules are nothing but electrons and electrons are nothing but charged with electromagnetic force. And so you go on reducing like this and uh, you still have some, you know, choices like, you know, of uh, uh, coordinate systems of axes of directions and, and things like that but you sort of accept that and say that this is the this is the most we could do so far so when we try to take that type of physical thinking with its associated logic and try to bring it back and use it to understand you know the ordinary language world and uh, and and then we try to you know uh, take logic as being sacrosanct, which is what most people are doing, uh, which is which is completely wrong. You know, logic is uh, logic is not what it is, uh, you know, taught to be. You know, it's it's a physical logic. It is not conceptual logic. It's not semantic logic because it's not semantic. You know, there is no meaning in that. Um, and and then we try to use that uh, to understand Vedic philosophy. Then we come up with numerous problems. And uh, one of these problems, like you said, is, you know, it's inconceivable, it doesn't fit in regular logic. And that is true. And Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's philosophy of Achintya Bheda Bheda is, is, is correct, it's a correct statement, but it's conditionally correct on, on the premise that we are going to use physical logic. But if we change the way we understand logic and we try to induct uh, uh, semanticism in that logic, then it's a, it, that logic violates identity, it violates non-contradiction, it violates mutual exclusion. So we have to conceive, reconceive logic in a new way. Based on that, uh, you know, conception of logic, we have to come up with a new mathematics or what we can call set theory, where sets will be actually concepts like a mammal and parts of the sets will be again concepts like cows. So it will be a concept a smaller concept part of a bigger concept. It's not be. It will not be one f bigger physical collection part of a, uh, you know, which contains smaller physical collections. So, so once we do that, then so it's it's basically ground up thinking to understand what we mean by, uh, what we what we mean by non-difference. So it, it's a very big enterprise. Uh, right now, it's being you know stuttered or you know it's being you know, stilted upon some uh, very simplistic ideas, but uh, if you go deep down into it, you'll find a lot of difficulties in understanding it. The last question is, can you explain um, uh, these three modes that you have talked about and its relation to Vedic philosophy and how these three ideas have also existed in, in some sense in Western philosophy and, and how, what do you mean by a new kind of uh, logic. So I have uh, you know, discussed this topic very extensively in uh, at least previous three 
podcast episodes and i'll briefly recapture it uh, the essence of of this logical contradiction problem is that we have to give up this idea that logical truth is universal truth or mathematical truth is universal truth we have to embrace this idea that uh, you know we view the world from different perspectives so sometimes i use the universalist mode sometimes i use the individual mode and sometimes i use the contextual mode and this is a general paradigm for even if you're talking about observation so to illustrate this with an example when you're looking at the world you we think that we are simultaneously using all the senses and we are using the senses along with the mind and intellect and so on but we are not consciousness always focuses on one thing so if you are looking through your eyes you're not hearing at the same time if you are hearing then you are not touching if you are touching that you're not tasting smelling and the mind is not you know uh, operating at the same time so the way perception works is that i look at something then i hear it so i am shifting from seeing to hearing and uh, so through the five senses we alternate between all these um, uh, sense perceptions and then we be drawn to the mind and then we say let's put all these sense perceptions together and come up with an idea then we be drawn to the intellect and say that uh, you know let's compare this uh, you know this idea that the mind came up with with pre-existing ideas and let's determine if it is true and then we go back into the mind we go back into the senses so we this process is so rapid that we think it's all happening simultaneously but if we meditate if we have uh, developed some mind and sense control we can see how everything is sequenced it's not simultaneously right so if we if we just understand our perception then we can understand this is not happening simultaneously and the reason it's not happening is because these are called the modes of nature your senses are different modes your mind is a different mode the mind is said to be uh, in the mode of goodness senses are said to be in the mode of sometimes in rajaguna sometimes in tamaguna um, that distinction is is not very important the main thing is that these modes are constantly cycling so sometimes i am in the mode of satvaguna when i am in the mind sometimes i am in rajaguna when i am in the intellect sometimes i am in tamaguna when i am doing sense observation so all these things are changing very very rapidly and consciousness is cycling through this so what that means is that the statement that this is an apple is a different mode than the statement that the apple is red so redness is a mode apple is a mode and uh, you know uh, the apple is tasty is a mode the apple smells good is a mode and you know uh, this is a green apple is a different mode and this is my apple is a different mode so all these modes are combined i mean they are they, they are simultaneously present but you cannot see them at the same time it's like it's like a dice you can see one face of the dice at one time so you have to keep tossing the dice again and again and again to see all the faces and that's what completeness turns out to be that you cannot get complete knowledge if you stick to one mode if you see only the four number face on a dice you have not seen the full dice so you have to roll it again then you see 6 then you see 3 then you see 2 1 and after some time if you have rolled your dice enough number of times you have toggled between these modes 
then you come to know the full complete reality but even when you are knowing it you never experience that reality completely to experience again you have to toggle through the modes right so this this these contradictions cannot be resolved in a conventional sense uh, where you know all truth is universal truth fact is no truth is universal truth it's always contextual even if you are going in the spiritual world some you know people will see krishna as a boy somebody will see him as a ruler somebody will see him as you know lover of the gopis somebody will so in, in, in even to understand god there are innumerable dimensions and you can only be in one dimension at one time that is because our consciousness is like that that is not god's consciousness right so this is a fundamental difference that reality is innumerable perspectives combined but i can only see one perspective whereas god can see innumerable perspectives so this is the sense in which we can say god is bigger and we are smaller god is a bigger consciousness and we are a small consciousness we are atomic and he is you know we are anu and he is vibhu what is the meaning of this big and small it means that there are innumerable dimensions i can be only on one dimension of perspective at one time whereas god can be on all the dimensions and perspectives at the same time so for example when the rasa dance happens krishna can dance with all the gopis simultaneously when he is in dwaraka he is with all his 16108 wives simultaneously each wife sees one aspect of krishna but krishna is everywhere so this is the difference between the soul and god that we can see only one perspective and therefore if we talk to somebody else who's seeing a different perspective then he and i can disagree or will disagree he'll say he'll say oh i am seeing the dice is 4 and you can say no, i am seeing the dice is 6 so this is the classic you know five blind men and the elephant problem one guy sees the tail one guy sees the trunk one guy sees the belly and they all argue about it but this problem is not just about the blind men it's also occurring simultaneously in every man just like i said you know you we are shifting in our perspective from our vision to sight to skin and to thoughts and to judgments and you know things like that so we are constantly shifting if we understand this paradigm then we can say there is no need to argue if you move to their perspective you can understand from that perspective also but even if you don't move to that perspective at least you can accept that you know my perspective will may not align with their perspective and these are mutually contradictory perspectives but there is factually no contradiction because we are not talking about universal truth we are talking about different perspectives on the same thing and that truth is called absolute truth rather than universal truth and that's a big difference in you know philosophical difference because in western philosophy truth always means universal truth logical truth is true in all possible universes mathematical truth is truth in all possible universes science is true everywhere but we are differentiating that universal truth from this absolute truth and the idea is simple that the absolute truth is like the dice and the relative truth is like the face of the dice the absolute truth is like the elephant and uh, the relative truth is like the tail leg belly you know of the elephant and you can't see all of them at the same time 
only the absolute truth can see everything at the same time the relative truth cannot see so there is actually no universal truth and that's a deep philosophical difference between east and west and uh, you know in the west all truth if it is not universally true then it is not true it's simply a fact you know it, you know my my car is parked in my garage that's a fact it's not you know it's not a conceptual or philosophical truth so all truth has to be universal truth and we are basically disagreeing on that claim of western philosophy and thinking where we're saying there is no universal truth it's all contextual as far as we are concerned and it is absolute as far as god is concerned so we can look at the world or try to look at the world from god's perspective and say all these perspectives are simultaneously true but not for me right so therefore it is said that god is everything but everything is not god this is again a break of identity principle because god's perspective includes all the individual perspectives but are my perspective or your perspective are you know confined to limited perspectives so uh you know so this is uh, so how these perspectives so these perspectives are constantly changing it's not that if i am looking at four of the dice i cannot see the six i need to change my perspective so i can change my perspective and, and you know and then i can see this perspective and the cycling of these perspectives or these modes is what creates variety so you know in the previous podcast we talked about dominant and subordinate we said you know some mode goes dominant the other one goes subordinate and that creates a new perspective and that dominant subordinate is the choice that we make to you know or, or pick a perspective right so what is subordinate i am seeing i am not seeing 4 so 4 is subordinate i am seeing 6 that is dominant so 6 is dominant but 4 is not absent even though i am not seeing 4 is just subordinated similarly when i go and see 4 then 4 is dominant but 6 is not absent it is subordinated so the reconciliation of all these contradictions is dominant and subordinate it is not that you say the sky is blue and i say the sky is brown and uh, you know you are right and i am wrong or vice versa it's just that you are looking at something in some way and you are getting a perspective about it and the other perspectives have been subordinated so how do we see that subordinated perspective is that we make it dominant again in some other perspective so that's how uh we we resolve all these contradictions but in the ultimate sense of uh, what is reality it is the composition of these three modes it's it has infinite combinations and uh, through this infinite combinations we get infinite you know variety and all these things they are you know different in one sense because they are parts the whole is you know the absolute truth and the relative truths are part of that truth so they are in one sense parts but they because they are conceptual they cannot be separated so you cannot say that my vision is not part of god's vision therefore it is an illusion every illusion is is part of you know god's vision even the material world is is part of god and uh, uh, but at the same time god prefers something over the other things so his preference becomes the absolute truth and what he doesn't prefer which exists becomes the falsity right 
So again, truth becomes a choice. What you're seeing or not seeing is, is, is your choice and your perspective. But then even, you know, why, does the, why is the material world false? It's simply because God doesn't like it. You don't ask why it is false. It's ultimately God's preference. He says, I don't like this. This is not my innate nature. This is different from me, even though it's part of me. Like you might have certain aspects of your personality, which you might not like. Right? You might get upset, you might get angry, you might get competitive, uh, you might get aggressive. So there are certain parts of you which you may not like. And there are some people who will say, oh, I like that part of being competitive and aggressive and, you know, uh, and, I, and I don't like the part where I'm gentle and docile and agreeable. So, so this, is, this is a choice for me, that's who I am. And God says, I have made a choice. I made a choice that this competitive part, the aggressive part, the controlling part is not me. It's part of me, but it is not me. I don't like it. I like the part that is loving, you know, uh, respecting, caring, whatever. This other aspect of me, I like that. And therefore, that is the primary truth. And the other thing that is part of me is something I don't like, even though it is there. And therefore, that part, you know, is the subordinate part. And the part that God likes is the dominant part. So the spiritual world is dominant and the material world is subordinate. So that's why you can say the spiritual world is superior. It's a, trans, it's, it's a better world and this, this world is inferior. Right? So you, we can rationally describe these things and say that why it is superior, why competition is not good, why people are not happy in this world. And by cooperation and love and affection are better things. But ultimately somebody can come and say that I like competition more. I like to be aggressive. I like to be, this is my preferred nature. I don't like to be agreeable and, you know, subordinate or whatever. So ultimately it comes down to a choice. And this material world and spiritual world difference also comes down to not our choice, but God's choice. Why is this world inferior? That's because God doesn't like it. Why God doesn't like it? Well, you, we don't know that. We, we cannot ask that question. It's, a, it's his choice. So, uh, uh, thank you for these questions. I, I hope this was uh, useful. If you have more questions for me, uh, you, can, you can send it through my website. Uh, uh, the, the website is www.ashishtalela.com. And there's a contact page. If you want to ask me questions, uh, you can send me. I'll try to address it through the podcast. Thank you.